Thank you for visiting Crosslink Community Church. We are located in Terre Haute, Indiana. For more information, please visit us online at cocchurch.com. Let's listen to one of our Sunday morning messages. on Tuesday evening that my life changed uh, forever after a a full day of labor that really wasn't nearly that difficult on me like I was anticipating uh, went pretty smoothly for me Um, 555 little girl Addison was born and so that's her right there and um, I got to tell you as much as I enjoy coming back here to Terre Haute I don't want to be here this morning I just want you to know that Uh, I had to go back to school on Friday just to get things in order and I've never not wanted to be at school like I didn't want to be at school on 
on Friday. Uh, we made it through the labor with me only saying one really, really stupid thing. And I would say overall, that's a, that's a big success. On Sunday of last week, I here, I got a hangnail on my left uh, or my right ring finger. You can see this coming already, can't you? I had this, this hangnail and I didn't have any fingernail clippers with me. So I, I let it grow and fester and all of that. And Monday I'd forgotten to clip it and I caught it on my pants and it kind of tore a little bit. So I'd had enough and I just ripped the thing right off, which is never a good idea, but I did that, and so it kind of swollen and gotten red, so Tuesday, when Jenny goes into labor, uh, you know, she's squeezing my hand, and uh, not even thinking at one point, as she's undergoing the pain of labor, I looked at her and said, um, "Hun, my uh, right ring finger's pretty sensitive, so if you could not squeeze that, that would be great. Have you ever seen The Exorcist? I don't know if you've ever seen that, but her head did a complete 360. The neck was all twisted, and she, this demonic voice came out and just, I'm really sorry, your fingernail's sensitive. So um, the stupidest part was I responded after, after she said that by saying, well, that's okay, you're in pain too. Um, had it not been for another contraction, I probably would have lost my life at that point in time, but she kind of froze up. But anyway, so uh, it's good to be back. It really is. And uh, last week, you endured the, the American history part Sunday evening. Those of you that came Sunday evening, the rest of you that were heathens, you missed that part. But on Sunday morning, we established the fact that our founding fathers were men of faith. And, and the way that you can know that is simply by looking at what they said themselves. Uh, don't take my word for it. I'm a right-wing Christian nut job. We all know that. But don't take the, the textbooks and all of these other secular humanists word for it either because they're just as committed to their cause. Why don't we take the words of the men themselves? And we saw last Sunday morning that we have a legacy of faith handed down by men who were in fact men of faith. Sunday evening we saw that those men of faith understood that the best basis for the laws of man are the laws of God and they took those principles that they believed personally and they used them at the implementation of this culture. So the logical question is how have we gotten here? How are we now at the point where we are today if that was our legacy, if that was the heritage that's been given to us? Well, I, I want to you to remember that I use the term isolation of church and state because, frankly, that's the goal of the modern secular humanist left. It is not to separate the, the two institutions. Remember we talked about last week that, that idea of separation of church and state is not an improper term. It's not a bad term at all because in the United States, thankfully, we had founding fathers who understood the church and the state have two different functions. And we shouldn't use the power of government to try to force people into the baptistry. That's not the job of government. But just as the state and the church have two different functions, they're still accountable to the same moral authority. Barack Obama still answers to the same moral authority that Brett does. You see how that works? You have a separation of institutions, but you don't isolate one from the other. And that's where we are today. The left is teaching us that to uphold this principle, this time-honored principle of the separation of church and state, we have to isolate one from the other. That we can come and see God on Sunday mornings and on Wednesday evenings, but when it comes to the rest of life, and certainly when it comes to running government, God shouldn't have anything to do with that. And we make our politicians do this dance to say that when they make laws, when they seek to, to write laws that tell us what's right and what's wrong, that they won't let their moral uh, principles guide them in doing that. It's one of the dumbest things we could ever possibly do. 
to, to illustrate what I'm talking about, when I use the term isolation, when we hear the phrase separation of church and state today, what do we think of? When you hear that term, what do you naturally think of? Well, I'm guessing you think of things like this, that you can't have a Bible in schools, that you can't pray in schools, that you shouldn't have religious courses or instructions in public high schools, you can't pray at graduation, and certainly the Pledge of Allegiance is questionable because it mentions God, and what about the atheist that doesn't believe in God? It makes him feel like an outsider. You can't post the Ten Commandments and certainly not mention Jesus or any of his teachings, and in some cases, court cases have been filed saying you can't have a moment of silence. Why? Because we all know what that silence is supposed to be. That's the argument that's made. We all know that's supposed to be prayer, and so for those that don't pray, that makes them feel like an outsider, and that's not the job of the school system. I ask you, when you see things like this, is that separating the institutions, or is that isolating one from the other, saying that there can be no interaction and no cooperation between the two? To me, it's obvious. Let me give you some actual court cases that have taken place to illustrate my point. In Syracuse, New York, Antonio Peck's kindergarten teacher at Catherine McNamara Elementary School gave Antonio and his class the assignment of creating a poster that would depict what could be done to save the environment. A very politically correct thing in our culture today. We want to save Mother Earth. So this is what we're going to do. Antonio draws a picture of Jesus Christ praying and captured the drawing, the only way to save the world, and prayer changes things. Now, chances are Antonio, as a kindergartner, probably had a little help from his parents on that. Uh, frankly, I really don't see a problem with parents being involved in their child's education and, and bringing them up the way that they see fit. I've never really had a problem with that, uh, but the teacher did, and the school system did. Didn't like this poster. The teacher refused to display the poster, saying it promoted his religion over another. Now, hold on just a second. I'm not going to argue with that. Of course, Antonio was promoting his religion over another. You can't, you can't come to that conclusion when you look at the poster that Antonio is not saying that Jesus is the only way to save the earth, the only way to save the world. But who's doing the promoting? It's not the government that's doing the promoting. It's the student that's doing the promoting. But the school said, nope, we can't do that. Because if the school allows it, well, it's the same thing as the school doing it, which is the same thing as the school, as the, as the government establishing a national religion. Maybe a bit of a leap. I mean, you got a kindergartner drawing a little picture. You probably can't even tell what the drawing is. But the little kindergartner draws this picture. That's the same thing in our legal system as the Congress of the United States establishing a national religion. Give me a stinking break. But so what happened? So Antonio Anthony goes back to the drawing board. He sketched a, a picture of people picking up garbage with a robe man beside them, kneeling with his hands raised towards heaven. The robe man nowhere in the picture was identified as Jesus. So what happened as the result of this court case? Well, the teacher agreed to display the second poster, but on the condition, and this is what the court allowed, that the part showing the robe man was folded over so that it could not be seen. Because someone might assume that that was, and particularly after his first drawing, that that was in fact Jesus. I ask you, is this separation or is this isolation? Covington, Georgia, the ACLU filed lawsuit against a public school district because the calendar of the public school district designated December 25th as Christmas, called it Christmas break, and they said that is unconstitutionally advancing religion. That it has to be a winter break or a winter holiday because if you put Christmas on the school calendar, that's the school basically putting their stamp of approval on the notion of a Christian holiday, which is the same thing as the government establishing a national religion. This is the argument, separation or isolation. During a murder trial in Florida, the trial court judge ordered that the courthouse's copy of the Ten Commandments be covered up for fear that the jurors might see the command, do not murder and be prejudiced against the defendant. I wish I was making this up. We now want jurors who, don't, who, who believe that it's maybe not necessarily wrong to kill someone. 
And then the most unbelievable of all, this one happened in the Southern District of Texas. Uh, you might even remember this case. It was back in 1995 when it happened. Uh, a student was going to give a uh, valedictory address at the graduation. The student was a professing and known Christian and was going to include a prayer in their, in their address. Well, of course, the school told them after pressure from the ACLU that they were not allowed to do that. The students themselves rebelled against that. And there was a movement among the students that said, well, if they're not going to let us pray, we're all going to stand up simultaneously at the same time and say a prayer right here and they can't stop us. I love those kids. So this is what they were going to do. Well, this went all the way, the school found out about it, went all the way to the Southern District Federal Court. A federal court is now deciding whether or not it's acceptable for these kids to do that at their graduation. This is what Judge Samuel Kent in the Southern District of Texas ruled. He ruled that any student that mentioned the name of Jesus would be jailed up to six months. Here is, you know, the little lady that sits there and types and her hands look like they're on a swivel. They're just all over the place. This is what the court record actually said that Judge Kent said. This is, the, this is an exact quote. And make no mistake, the court is going to have a United States Marshal in attendance at the graduation. If any student offends this court, that student will be summarily arrested and will face up to six months incarceration in Galveston County Jail for contempt of court. Anyone who thinks I'm kidding about this order better think again. Anyone who violates these orders, no kidding, is going to wish that he or she had died as a child when this court gets through with it. Folks, I ask you, is this separation or isolation? This is an exact quote. This isn't me telling you the way things are happening. This is me showing you exactly what court decisions that are coming down right now as we speak are saying. And, and keep in mind, this was 14 years ago. It's only gotten worse. Is it separation where we believe that the church and the state have two different functions, but they can interact, they can cooperate, and that in fact religious principle is actually good to teach morality in your country? Is that where we are, or are we at a point now where the government is believing that the church has to be completely isolated from the rest of public life? I would contend to you it's clearly the latter. So the question is, how did we get here? Well, let me give you a brief history, and I, I promise it won't be as much history as last week. A brief history of this separation of church and state doctrine. Here's what happened. 1801, and some of you know this history. Just bear with me as we go through it. Danbury Baptist Association of Connecticut. So you've got a bunch of crazy Baptists running around in Connecticut. And they become concerned. If, if you're Baptist, I'm really sorry. I wasn't, like, intentionally insulting you. Baptists are not crazy. I'm just clearing that up. It was just a phrase. Okay, anyway, so the Danbury Baptist Association, they hear this rumor that's floating around throughout the colonies, and the rumor really, really concerns them. This rumor was that the newly created federal government, look at the year, 1801, we established this government, 1788 is when it got started, so it's a relatively infant republic, and this newly created government was about ready to officially recognize the Congregationalist denomination, a huge denomination at that point in time, was going to become the national religion. Now keep in mind, a lot of states had their own state religions, and so it's not absurd for them to believe that we're going to now have a national religion, and it's going to be the Congregationalists. Now, some people say, well, this is silly. Look at what the First Amendment says. It forbids religious establishment. Why would the Baptists be worried about that? I think there's two reasons. Number one, they're paranoid. Honestly, they're paranoid. Why? Because if you look at one denomination that had been the prime target of, of, of uh, persecution, it would be the Baptists. Remember, I told you last week, James Madison and his dad would go and listen to preachers who had been imprisoned for speaking, uh, preaching the Baptist gospel. Okay, so Madison was, had been impacted by this. Certainly, the Baptists had been persecuted. Uh, Roger Williams, of course, had started his, his colony as, and, and was a famous Baptist minister, and they were kind of separatists. They were kind of ostracized from everybody. So the Baptists were 
kind of like the uh, ugly stepchild, okay, of the Christian denomination. So they felt that way. They were paranoid. And secondly, congregationalism is huge. A ton of key founding fathers were congregationalists, whether it was Roger Sherman or Ellsworth or Caleb Strong. A lot of leading governmental officials were congregationalists. So the Baptists put two and two together. And they said, well, uh, we're always getting persecuted. And now the congregationalists have all of this control of the national government. It's possible that the national government's getting ready to do this. So they did all that they could do. They wrote a letter to the president at the time. His name was Thomas Jefferson. And they voiced their protest saying, please don't allow this to happen. Don't allow the congregationalist denomination to become the church of America. And in his response, Thomas Jefferson is trying to allay these fears that these Baptists have. And so what does he do? Well, he goes to a very friendly source to them. He goes to Roger Williams, the famous Baptist minister. He quotes a minister in his letter. Folks, when you hear the separation of church and state, that actually came from a minister's, uh, 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 what did they call him? Sermon, that's the word. A sermon that he gave his congregation, a message. It comes from Roger Williams. Williams had discussed the fact that there was a wall of separation that God had built here in the colonies to protect the Baptist from the influence of the state, that they weren't going to be persecuted here. God had erected this wall to protect them, to protect you and your right to worship. It's not going to be the way that it was in Europe. That's what William's whole message had been about. And so Thomas Jefferson goes back to Williams, takes his cue from him, and writes back to the Danbury Baptists. And this is what Thomas Jefferson says. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for faith or his worship, that the legislative powers of government reach actions only and not opinions, I contemplate with solemn reverence that act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should, here it comes, make no law respecting an establishment of a religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. Folks, that's it. That's it. I wish that I could show you the rest of the letter that goes on to say, and this is why we absolutely prohibit religion from having any influence on government. I wish that I could show you that so we could make sense out of what's happening today. I wish Jefferson went on and said, and this is why you have to prevent students from mentioning the name of Jesus in school, because if they do and there are non-believing students in the school, their heads will explode, and we can't allow that to happen. I wish that Jefferson went on to say that, but he doesn't. This is it. This is the entire basis for what you just saw in those court cases. And this is Thomas Jefferson trying to allay the fears of a bunch of who? A bunch of Christians. These are Baptist Christians. Stop and think through this for just a second. You know, this is one of the things that I love the most. If Thomas Jefferson was really arguing for what the left says he was arguing for, this radical isolation of church and state, if Thomas Jefferson was really laying the groundwork for a judge telling students that if they pray in the name of Jesus, they're going to be jailed, you know who the biggest violator of that principle would have been? Thomas Jefferson. He would have been the biggest violator of what the left says he was actually arguing for. How do I know that? Take a look at this from the Library of Congress. Okay, this doesn't come from Peter Heck's personal uh, journal. Okay, this is from the Library of Congress. It is no exaggeration to say that on Sundays in Washington, during the administrations of Thomas Jefferson and of James Madison, the state became the church. Within a year of his inauguration, Jefferson began attending church services in the House of Representatives. Madison followed Jefferson's example. Worship services in the House were acceptable to Jefferson because they were non-discriminatory and voluntary. Preachers of every Protestant denomination appeared. Throughout his administration, Jefferson permitted church services in executive branch buildings. The gospel was also preached in the Supreme Court chambers. I got to ask you, do you not see that if Thomas Jefferson was arguing for the isolation of church and state, Thomas Jefferson would have been the biggest violator of it? 
Last week I showed you a clip of a debate that I had with Annie Lori Gaylor of the Freedom From Religion Foundation. I asked her about this uh, when she brought up the wall of separation that Thomas Jefferson spoke of. I, I said, well, you realize that Thomas Jefferson then would have been the biggest violator of it. And I read her this quote. Her response was, well, I don't know what you're reading from. I said, I'm reading from the Library of Congress, actually. Well, that doesn't matter what the particular beliefs of one of the founding fathers was. Folks, we're not talking about their personal belief that they went home and talked to their spouse about. This is government policy. This is the way they were running the show, okay? So if you're going to make the argument that presidents and congri, that's the plural for congresses, that presidents and congri and supreme courts and, and federal district courts cannot in any way, shape, or form allow religion to influence what they're doing, and specifically Christianity, you must come to that conclusion completely ignoring the way that the founding fathers themselves implemented the very document that they wrote. Woo! That was a big sentence. I like that one. I don't know that I could do it again, but I hope someone wrote it down because that was fantastic. I'm very proud of myself right now. All right, so anyway, uh, this is my point to you. Surely if Thomas Jefferson, his intent in that letter had been to prevent any confluence of faith and religion, surely if his intent had been to prevent Christianity from influencing government in any way, shape, or form, uh, which is the view of the modern courts, why would that same guy have allowed federal buildings and federal funds and federal officials to be used for religious events? Why would he have ever done that if that was truly his intent? You see, this is why I wrote that pamphlet. My master's thesis was, what did the First Amendment mean to the men who wrote it? I'd be interested to know that. If we really want to understand what the First Amendment means, maybe we should look at the guys who wrote the, the stinking thing and the way they implemented it. That would tell us a lot. What we see is that Jefferson's wall of separation was intended, and this is exactly what he let, his letter says, to protect you. It's protecting you from the power of government. It's not protecting government from the influence of the church. Not in any way, shape, or form was that what Thomas Jefferson was arguing. And the intent is absolutely indisputable. So let's go to this concept that I was talking about. What did the First Amendment mean to the men who actually wrote it? Folks, we can look, and we will real briefly here, real quickly. What did the early Congresses do? When you look at what the early Congri did and you compare it to the First Amendment, our, our interpretation, by the way, please don't use that term Congri in conversation with people. That's a, I'm making that term up, all right? So I can just see someone out there, well, you do realize that the early Congri, uh, no, you're going to be laughed at, all right? So anyway, the early Congresses, when you look at what they did, you'll see what they thought was a violation of the First Amendment and what wasn't. What about the early presidents? What about the early courts? Let's look at them real briefly. What about the Congresses? Even prior to the ratification of the First Amendment, before we'd even put the First Amendment into place, Congress had already established chaplains for the House and the Senate. They were paid from the National Treasury uh, with tax dollars. We're paying chaplains with tax dollars. Early Congresses used their power to commission churches. Yeah. To conduct Christian religious ceremonies. To pass laws in accordance with what they called divine law or natural law, moral law. They paid ministers. They invested in missionaries. They used public policy to advance moral law. These are the terms that they're using. This is what Congress believes. Remember, the very first act of the Continental Congress was to do what? To import Bibles and distribute them into the various parts of the Union. Okay, this is, not a, this is not a Congress. These are not early Congresses that have a big problem with the interaction of church and state. Not at all when you look at it. These Congresses convened when many of our founding fathers were still living. Many of our founding fathers were in those Congresses, and there's not one single in, instance of an objection from any of those founding fathers saying, uh, we're violating the First Amendment, and we're violating what we believed was necessary for, for uh, our society to function. Not one incident of the founding fathers objecting to the relationship that church and state 
had, not one. What about the early presidents? You look at the early presidents and there are some stunning facts. The historical record, it'll blow your mind when you realize what our early presidents were doing with tax dollars. 1795, President Washington approved a land grant of $1,000 to build a Christian church for the Anita Indians. 1796, Congress passed. Washington approved an act regulating the land. It was government land given to the Society of United Brethren for what purpose? Propagating the gospel among the heathen. Government land given for the sole purpose of evangelism. This act would be extended under Adams and Jefferson. 1803, Congress approved, and President Jefferson gave a grant of $100. It went a little further back then. $100 for seven years to a Roman Catholic priest to evangelize the Kaskaskia Indians, $300 to help build them a church. Similar pacts were later made by Jefferson with the Wyandotte Indians in 1806, the Cherokees in 1807. 1819, President Monroe, along with Congress, approved a grant of 640 acres to build a Roman Catholic church in Detroit. 1825, President John Quincy Adams gave to the Osage Indians federal lands for missionary establishment, and their purpose was to engage in teaching, civilizing, and improving said Indians. I want to stop right here and point out, I'm only showing you one thing of these presidents. We could keep going with multiple examples of this. What I'm trying to show you is the early presidents did not believe it was inappropriate to encourage religious enterprise. In fact, they believed it was necessary. Now, notice the word that I just used, encourage. What did the First Amendment prohibit? It prohibited Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. You see, the First Amendment forbid religious establishment, saying you all have to be of this religion. Did the First Amendment forbid religious endorsement? or religious advancement, or religious encouragement? No. It, 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 what it forbid was establishing a religion, and that's why these presidents believed that this was completely appropriate. And by the way, they're the ones that wrote the stinking amendment. 1833, Congress and President Jackson approved a grant of $3,700 to build a church and a mill for the Kickapoo Indians. By the way, if I could go back in time and be any Indian tribe, Kickapoo, because that is the greatest Indian tribe of all time. Just the name is spectacular. I want to be a Kickapoo. All right, so anyway, all of these examples, 1838, President Van Buren, what did he do along with Congress? Approved funds to help build another church for the Anita Indians on federal land, and we could keep going. These are just the early presidents, one example of each. Now, I have a question. What would happen? What would the ACLU, what would the Freedom From Religion Foundation, what would Americans United for the Separation of Church and State do today if a president attempted to do any of these things? If a president attempted to take federal tax dollars and use them to influence, or not influence, but to encourage or to spread the Christian gospel message because they said, well, it's essential for our society to survive. It teaches morality, and morality is necessary for a free people. If you've got free people and they're not moral, look out. So because of that, we want to encourage Christian principle, so we're going to use tax dollars to encourage those things. What would happen? You know what would happen. This is unconstitutional. There'd be lawsuits filed. It would lose all control of bodily functions. You know that as well as I know that. And if you don't believe me, I want you to take a look at... I I have this habit of being a real smart aleck. I don't know if you picked up on that. Uh, But when I was interviewing Annie Laurie Gaylor, she was ready to hang up the phone with me. Again, president of Freedom From Religion Foundation. I gave her a bait and switch just to prove my point. And I want you to watch. Can I give you one current day issue with Governor Palin and ask your opinion on it and then we'll close? Governor Palin's being investigated. Some people are saying this is why she's resigned for allegedly giving a $1,000 land grant. All right, this is government land to a Christian organization to build an evangelism center. My point is, if I made the argument that the values that are taught in that center were consistent with the values and principles necessary for our civilization to endure, therefore it's acceptable, would you agree with me? No. So it's unconstitutional for her to do that? Yes. 
Okay, here's my problem. This is my problem with your organization. 1795, George Washington used a $1,000 land grant to build a church for the Anita Indians. This, this is where I think there's a huge disconnect between the intent of the founders and where we are today. It, it's really not Governor Palin, ma'am. It was George Washington. Governor Palin doesn't have anything to do with it. Goodbye. That was our conversation. Folks, you know as well as I do that if we applied the actions of the founding fathers to current leaders, that would be the most unconstitutional thing you could ever imagine. Well, what does that say when the men who wrote the Constitution are the men that we would now deem unconstitutional? What it tells me is that we aren't anywhere close to interpreting the First Amendment the right way. What about the, when we talk about the interpretation, what about the early courts? How did they interpret the First Amendment? I mean, these are now the courts that are saying you can't have any influence of religion in the public square. Well, it's a little bit of a, well, it's not a little bit, it's a lot bit of a far cry from where the courts used to be. Look at Runkle versus Weinmiller. Case came out of Maryland in 1799, and it was regarding this very issue of Christian principle being involved in government and the First Amendment. This is what the court ruled. Look at this. By our form of government, the Christian religion is the established religion. And all sects and denominations of Christians are placed upon the same equal footing and are equally entitled to the protection in their religious liberty. Is this not exactly what we established last week when we said the purpose of the First Amendment was to make sure that not one Christian denomination got a stronger footing in national government over another? And the court is saying, obviously, Christianity is the established religion. The First Amendment was to put all of the denominations of Christianity on the same equal footing. That's what it was all about. By the way, look at the date on this, 1799. Our founding fathers were still alive. Uh, some of them were on the court that made this decision. There was no appeal. There was no challenge to the legitimacy of this ruling. Not one single founding father spoke out in opposition to it. This is what the First Amendment meant. Look at the case People versus Ruggles came out of New York in 1811. This case came about when Ruggles, he was a pretty miserable, despicable character. This guy had been accused. He'd been convicted. He'd been sentenced to prison for blasphemy. Now, you can actually stop right there and consider blasphemy. There was laws against blasphemy. That should tell us something. What was it that he was doing? He had uttered the statement, and I'm not going to say it. You can figure it out for yourself. Jesus Christ is a blank, and so his mother must be a blank. Now, I don't know why you would want to say something like this other than to just picket people. Uh, but what did Ruggles argue when he got in trouble for this? You know, because you, this is exactly what we'd hear today. Well, I've got free speech. I can say what I want to say. Uh, this is completely my, my freedom to do and say whatever I I want to say and this is exactly what happened so his case went all the way up all the way up to the state supreme court they upheld the lower court's decision that punished ruggles and this is what they said take a look at this ruling christianity is parcel that means part christianity is part of the law and to cast continuous reproaches upon it which means to say bad things about christianity that tends to weaken the foundation of moral obligation and the efficacy of oaths in other words it's weakening the very foundation of our society when you take your oath uh, on a Bible to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. If we're going to cast reproaches upon that very authority, and we're going to try to degrade that authority in the minds of the people, what happens to the efficacy of oaths that we're taking? This is supposed to be something solemn. This oath is supposed to be built upon the authority of God, something beyond even mortals' government. And yet when we're going to degrade that religion and that authority, that isn't going to work out well for our society. That's what the court is ruling. And then they go on to say this. This one's unbelievable. This one gives me chills. This one gets me excited. I just want to run around the place. Whatever strikes at the root of Christianity tends manifestly to the dissolution of civil government. Big words there, very simple message. What this means, in other words, is if you attack Christ, which is what Ruggles was doing, if you attack Christ, then you're attacking Christianity. That's fairly obvious. But if you attack Christianity, that's the foundation of a American society. 
And therefore, an attack on Christ is, in essence, an attack on the very foundation of the United States, and we can't allow it. If this culture was really built on Christian principle, and you're attacking the author of Christian principle, I mean, it's just the same thing, logically speaking, as an attack on the cultural foundation of the country. Why would we ever allow that to take place? The court upheld this particular ruling. How about the Massachusetts Grand Jury, 1802? The laws of the Christian system as embraced by the Bible must be respected as of high authority in all our courts. It cannot be thought improper for the... Look at this line. It cannot be thought improper for the officers of such government to acknowledge their obligation to be governed by its rule. Stop and just think about that for a second. The court is ruling in 1802. It's not wrong. It's obvious that a person in position of authority in government would acknowledge that they are governed by the rules and the authority of the Bible. It's the Word of God. They're accountable to the Word of God. That's not improper for them to think that. It's improper for them not to think that they're uh, governed by some higher moral authority. And now consider where we are today, where we make them do the dance. Even JFK, back when he was running for president, uh, are you going to be dictated to by your church? Uh, we got to be careful about this. Oh, no, no, I promise that if there's a serious decision that I've got to make, I will completely leave my church and all of my positions and, and morality. I'll leave it behind me and make this decision ba- based purely on my own personal desires because that's going to build a healthy and a happy society. Just go with that thought for just a second. All right, our government, look at this. Our government originating in that voluntary compact of a people who in that very instrument, the Constitution professed the Christian religion, we may be considered not as Republic Rome was a pagan, but a Christian Republic, the court in 1802. How about this one? This one's one of my favorite. Chester County, New York, 1831. This tells you a little bit about the cultural foundation of America. The Court of Common Pleas of Chester County a few days since rejected a witness who declared his disbelief in the existence of God. Rejected a witness because he was an atheist. Look at what the presiding judge said. The presiding judge remarked that he had not before been aware that there was a man living who did not believe in the existence of God. Does that tell you something about early America? A judge didn't even know there were such people out there as atheists. Oh, we heard rumors about them, but are there really people that are this touched? I mean, seriously, honestly, I, the column that I've written, um, there's, a, there's a few websites that syndicate a weekly column that I write, and the one that I've written for this week is there's no atheists in birthing centers. There's really not. We always hear no atheists in foxholes. Folks, if you have been present for the birth of a child, and so many of you have been, There ain't no way you can believe that this was not by intentional design, that the wind just blew across the lime in the right way, and all of a sudden this life just took place. It's absurd to make that argument when you see all of the intricate workings of the... uh, It's just incredible to look at that, and I'm going to get off on that topic and start telling you all about the child, and I'm not going to do that. We've got to stay focused, all right? So here we go. The judge is saying, because this guy doesn't believe in God, we can't take him seriously. Okay, uh, pick it up where that this belief constituted the sanction of all testimony in a court of justice, that he knew of no cause in a Christian country where a witness had been permitted to testify without such a belief. If you don't even believe in God, how can we take you seriously? I mean, you're a lunatic. You look around and you don't see the fingerprint of God everywhere. How could we ever trust your testimony? I mean, you, you obviously are a little touched. That's what, the ju- that's what the judge is actually saying in this decision should tell you a little bit about the way the courts interpreted the First Amendment. And we could go on and on and on. The court said in 1892, we could go on and on and on. The case was Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States. They said, these and many other matters which might be noticed add a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterances that this is a Christian nation. We find everywhere a clear recognition of that same truth. Folks, all you have to do is read history, and you'll see it's littered. I mean, our history, our past is littered with references to this being a Christian republic built upon Christian principle. Again, let me stress this in case you missed it last week. I don't know if I said it in the morning, so I need to say it again. There is a 
huge difference between forcing people by the, by, by the sword, by the hand of government, into a Christian church, into the baptistry, to take communion. That's something that the First Amendment forbid. It's a wholly different thing to take Christian principle like respect for human life, moral accountability, stewardship, frugality, um, uh, charity, doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. Okay? These are Christian principles, using those as the backbone of your civilization. The founding father said, that is inappropriate. It's not the job of government. That's not me. I'm not having the baby this week. Um, last week, were you, was it in this service? No, it was the second service. My phone went off. Somebody was sending me a picture of the food they were eating for lunch. And I about wet my pants in front of the entire crowd. It was unbelievable. But anyway, all right, so what was I saying? Okay, huge difference. The founding father said, that was wrong, and they forbid it. This over here, they said, absolutely essential. Your country will not survive if you don't do this over here. A clear recognition of this same truth. Folks, there certainly should be a clear recognition of that truth. But unfortunately, instead, we're seeing an unconscionable deception that's been taking place over the last several decades. How else, in the light of everything that you just saw, how else could the court decide that the Pledge of Allegiance is unconstitutional? How could any court decide that? How in the world can we decide in a court of law that singing joy to the world at a Christmas concert in a school is unconstitutional? How do you look at our past and come to that conclusion? Well, I'll tell you how this happens. Because the secular humanist left has focused in on two primary targets. And they have been taking dead aim at these two targets over the last several decades. Number one, the public school system. Because they know you influence the minds of the next generation and you've influenced the philosophy of government. And secondly... The judicial branch. Take over the court system. We're never going to get our legislation pushed through the the legal way. We're never going to get the people to agree with us. So rather than going through the lawmaking branches, we'll just have a judge issue a dictate and say this is the way it's going to be. And we'll advance our legislation. We'll advance our morality a lot quicker that way. Don't believe me. Remember what we've said about me. You know this about me. I'm not trustworthy. Look at what they say themselves. Charles Potter, the founder of the first humanist society. Education is thus the most powerful ally of humanism. Every American public public school is a school of humanism. What can the theistic Sunday schools meeting for an hour once a week and teaching only a fraction of the children do to stem the tide of a five-day program of humanistic teaching? It's a good question. How about the National Education Association? They publish a guide to the extreme right. In case you're wondering who the extreme right is, it's you. And this is what they say. They won't go away no matter how bizarre we believe their beliefs to be, no matter how illogical and inconsistent their goals appear, and no matter how often we reassure ourselves that this too shall pass, the political, social, and religious forces that make up the radical right in contemporary American society will not go away. This is the National Education Association, supposedly interested in advancing the cause of education in the United States. Uh, People have asked me why I teach in the public school system. Uh, That's it, right there. Uh, That's it. Because when we abandon that system, we abandon it to these people. And look, I am a huge proponent of homeschooling. I am a huge proponent of private schools. As a public school teacher, you don't normally hear that. A huge proponent of it. And look, when you're dealing with your school system, you need to know your school system by the back of your hand. And sometimes even there's great Christian teachers in it. And the teachers aren't the problem. The problem's the curriculum that's being written. I'm going to show you that in just a second. But be involved because what you don't see can make a world of difference. Also, when it comes to the judicial branch, look at what the humanist Paul Blanchard wrote. My primary hero in helping substantially to make the nation into a secular society is the United States Supreme Court. He's basically saying, yeah, we can't get the people to elect legislatures to, to enact all of these laws because the people don't agree. So what we do is we just get judges appointed who will make these decrees and force it upon the people. How does this happen? Judicial activism. A judge that doesn't make... Uh, here's the way the, the founding fathers set up judges to work. They would look 
at previous rulings of previous courts. They would look at past practice and they would say, this is the way the law was implemented, so this is the way we're going to uphold the law. Judicial activism is the exact opposite. It's cart before the horse. I make up my mind and then I look for any evidence to support it. That's judicial activism. It's also been called uh, by some uh, the abandonment of precedent, uh, judicial positivism. All of this is saying the same thing. The evolution of law. Some have even called it judicial tyranny. Now, some people think that's a bit of a stretch. Well, let me ask you a question. What is tyranny? You know what tyranny is. Tyranny is when an unelected official, unaccountable to the masses, makes his decrees and everybody's forced to follow them, whether they like them or not. That's what a tyrant is. Well, let me ask you a question. When 80% of the United States Congress, Democrats and Republicans, vote to ban the heinous act of partial birth abortion, and a whole other branch of government, the executive, the president, comes in and signs that bill into law, and then one lone, unelected, unaccountable judge in Nebraska strikes it down as unconstitutional, overruling the will of the vast majority of the American people. What is that? If that's not tyranny, I don't know the definition of the term. An unelected, unaccountable official issuing a decree that everybody's forced to follow. That's what our founding fathers called tyranny. Uh, you want a perfect example? Take a look at Chief Justice, former Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes. We are under a constitution, but the constitution is what the judges say it is. We the people? No. We the judges. That's the way the ball game works. And so because of this philosophy, we've had a procession of ludicrous rulings. Everson versus the Board of Education is the one that started it. Here's where they take that, that term, that, Thomas, or that phrase Thomas Jefferson used, building a wall of separation between church and state. That wall must be kept high and impregnable. This phrase, separation of church and state, had appeared in only one Supreme Court ruling prior to 1947. Jefferson said it in 1801 in that letter. You think about how often we hear separation of church and state today. Then recognize that between 1801 and 1947, it had been in one ruling, and it wasn't even used in this way. This is a modern creation of the courts. This is not something that's historical. This is the first time the First Amendment has been interpreted in this way. All of a sudden now it becomes a protection of the government from your influence. You and, and, and groups that are, are promoting morality, now it's you people that are restricted from influencing the power of government. And all of this set the stage for possession of idiotic rulings. Engel versus Vitale, this is the one that struck down prayer that was established by the New York School Board of Regents for recitation in public schools. And their schools, they decided, these are the values that we want preached, these are the values we want taught. And so they said, we're going to every morning have the students say this prayer. They stand up, they don't want to say it, they don't have to. They can sit if they want to. But the school is going to do this on a daily basis, sort of like saying the Pledge of Allegiance. This is what the students would recite. Almighty God, we acknowledge our dependence upon thee. We beg thy blessings upon us, our parents, our teachers, and our country. Uh, folks, let me just say this. That's the epitome of a bland prayer. I mean, if your God was your number two yellow pencil, you are unoffended by that prayer, okay? Because you can hold up your pencil. Almighty God, I acknowledge my dependence upon thee. Okay, there is no reference to Jesus. There's no ref reference to Allah or to Muhammad or to Buddha. This is a bland prayer. No citations of previous cases. No precedent cited in this at all. They determined that this was unconstitutional on the basis of the founding father's intent, and yet they never quoted a single founding father. Not one in the ruling. Now, let me ask you a question. If this is unconstitutional because it mentions the word God once, what does that do to the Declaration of Independence? mentions Almighty God four times. It's a bland reference to Almighty God. But if this is somehow unconstitutional for students to hear because it might offend them, what about the Declaration of Independence? It's got four references. What about the Pledge of Allegiance? It's got one bland reference also. Well, 
I hate to tell you this, but that's exactly the philosophy of the secular humanist. Look at what the ACLU said the day after the court ruled that the, that the Pledge of Allegiance was unconstitutional. Today, a federal appeals court in California ruled that the phrase under God in the Pledge of Allegiance is an unconstitutional endorsement of religion and cannot be recited in schools. We believe the court's finding was correct. This is their intent, folks. Don't take my word for it. Take theirs. Any reference to God in the public square. Oh, completely unacceptable because it might make someone feel like an outsider. Can I point out a word that I want you to pay very close attention to? That this word's under God in the Pledge of Allegiance is an unconstitutional laser pointer. Look at this word here, endorsement of religion. Well, the only way it can be an unconstitutional endorsement of religion is if the Constitution forbids endorsing a religion. But when I read the First Amendment, I see Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of a religion. It doesn't say anything about endorsement. You see, you change one word and all of a sudden the entire intent of the First Amendment is flipped on its head. It's something completely different. And if you accept the Ingle Vitale ruling, you have to follow it through to its logical conclusion, which the court did in 1963. Each school day in this particular school opened with a, uh, a reading without comment of the student's favorite portion of scripture. Uh, uh, participation was voluntary. The student selected the passage. One student was even allowed to read from the Quran privately during the, the Bible reading. Nonetheless, this practice and all Bible reading in public schools was proclaimed unconstitutional. And in the ruling, the court quoted the testimony of one of the witnesses that said that the unexplained reading of the New Testament might be, quote, psychologically harmful to the child. It would be psychologically harmful to hear the New Testament in schools. Psychologically harmful. Mike, I want you, you to remember that the Bible was the only textbook in a lot of colonial schools. The only one that was there. Okay, states were given resources to buy uh, Bibles for their classrooms. And I want you to compare that ruling of the court, psychologically harmful to the child in 1963. I want you to back it up to 1844 and look at the case of Vidal versus Girard. And this is what that same court said. Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the schools? Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? You're wanting to teach kids to be moral and to be good people. Why wouldn't you use the Bible? Why wouldn't you use the New Testament? You're not going to learn those principles anywhere any better than from the Bible. 1844, fast forward to 1963, all of a sudden it becomes psychologically harmful to the child. Stone versus Graham, 1980, this is the one that got rid of the Ten Commandments. I don't know uh, what your school systems are like, but in mine, there are these, uh, th these glass showcases as you walk down the hallways, and sometimes they'll display like student art in there. A lot of times you don't want to look because it's bizarre, and these, uh, well, it's just bizarre. But anyway, um, this is essentially what happened, that they had posted in a very passive way a piece of art that had the Ten Commandments. Is this appropriate or is this not appropriate to be in a public building? They cited no precedent before 1947. Keep that in mind. We're ruling on the intent of the founding fathers, but we're not going to cite any court case or any quote before 1947. Mm -hmm. This is what the court said in their ruling. If the posted copies of the Ten Commandments are to have any effect at all, it will be to induce the school children to read. And if they read, they might meditate upon. And if they meditate upon, they might venerate, respect, and obey the commandments. This is not a permissible state objective. If you got them there, a kid might read them. And if they read them, they might believe them. And if they believe them, then they might start following them. And that is not a permissible state objective. And let me say, thank God, we have a court that's protecting us from the vile consequences that would occur if students actually started believing it was wrong to murder one another. Thank God we have a Supreme Court protecting us from the vile consequences that might occur if kids believed that it was wrong to lust after one another or to, uh, uh, to steal or to bear false witness, that they believed that it was wrong to cheat on their spouse. 
But thankfully, the cord is there to protect us from those consequences. I hope you're picking up on the sarcasm because I'm putting it down pretty thick for you, okay? This is why this is just astounding to me because I want you to look at what your courts allow your kids to read. They have no problem with this. I'm going to show you quotes from actual school textbooks. And folks, this isn't from San Francisco. This isn't from Chicago. This isn't from New York. This is from my school system. Came through my school. Uh, about as close to a private school as a public school can be. In the heart of the Bible Belt. These are the textbooks. This is why I said earlier, even if you got Christian teachers, look at the textbooks. This is what they say. Biology and everyday experience. About 45 million years ago, primates evolved into two main groups, New World Monkeys and Old World Monkeys. Human-like ancestors first appeared as Neanderthals. Neanderthals became extinct after evolving into modern humans. So the religion of Darwinian evolutionary naturalism, that's okay for schools. But the Christian religion, the New Testament, oh... Mm -mm. Can't have that separation of church and state. How about this one in psychology? Freud proved his theory in a case study on a five-year-old boy whom he called Little Hans. Little Hans had a terrible fear of horses, which Freud later concluded came from his fear of his father and sexual longing for his mother. It doesn't matter. All right. This case confirms not only Freud's suspicion that even very young children have sexual desires, but also his belief that strong emotions can be pushed out of consciousness and later resurface. Okay, I'm sure there's a psychological, an in-depth psychological explanation. Problem is a lot of kids don't get that. And uh, this, to me, confirms that Freud had some issues. I, I mean, to me, that's what this confirms. But regardless of that, what are we allowing? We're allowing Freudian neosexology. That religion is fine for schools. But the New Testament? Oh, separation of church and state. How about this? You remember reading this, the Odyssey or the Iliad in schools? We've all read Greek mythology. Poseidon, Lord, you set the earth to tremble. Broke it up on the rocks at your land's end. O oh, Father Zeus and gods and bliss forever. So evidently, the religion of the Greeks is okay to have in schools, but the New Testament, completely unacceptable. A separation of church and state. Or how about this in the American history textbook? What made these Europeans so daring was their belief in themselves. The people of Europe believed that human beings were the highest form of life. This was the philosophy or the belief of humanism. So humanism is a fine religion to have in schools. You can teach that. Don't worry about separation of church and state there. But the New Testament, oh, separation of church and state. We can't have that religion there. How about th this is what passes as poetry now from the literature book, Death and Company by Sylvia Plath. I do not stir. The frost makes a flower. The dew makes a star. The dead bell, the dead bell. Somebody's done for. Uh, it doesn't even rhyme, okay? I, my, here's my question. Whatever happened to Mary had a stinking little lamb? Seriously, that used to be poetry, and now it's this freakishly bizarre stuff. That we're, that's okay to have in schools, but by golly, the New Testament might be psychologically damaging. Just reading that to you, I feel psychologically damaged, to tell you the truth. But the New Testament is psychologically damaging. And how about this? Karl Marx, the father, the father of modern communism, is going to be in the sociology textbooks. Religion is the opium of the people. It eases pain even as it creates fantasies. Religion is so full determined by economics that it is pointless to consider any of its doctrines or beliefs on their own merits. Humans should not refuse to take credit for their own accomplishments. So the religion of atheism, communism, that's fine to be taught in public schools. That's more than acceptable. But the religion of Christianity flowing from the New Testament, well, separation of church and state. And how about this one? Sociology, 9th edition. A growing body of evidence suggests that sexual orientation is innate, that it's rooted in human biology in much the same way that people are born right-handed or left-handed. Let me stop for a second and say this. Um, and I want to make, make this very clear. Please don't assume that I have never dealt with either a family member or a person who's close to my family that struggled with the sin of homosexuality. 
don't, don't insult me by suggesting that I don't know the emotional side of this issue, okay? Because I do. But I'll tell you this. The American Psychological Association and the American Medical Association have now changed all of their literature to acknowledge the reality that after decades of searching, they are completely unable to find any genetic or heredity, uh, hereditarial cause to homosexuality. There is none. There is no gay gene. None whatsoever. This, what you just saw, is an outright, bold-faced lie that's being propagated in the public school textbooks. That it's just the same as being right-handed or left-handed. And this is what they go on to say. To the extent that sexual orientation is based in biology, homosexuality is not a matter of choice any more than, say, skin color. Shouldn't gay men and lesbians accept the same legal protection from discrimination as African Americans? Uh, Stop for just a second. Uh, Let me tell you, if I was a member of the civil rights movement, if I had marched with Dr. King, that would offend me beyond belief. That we can in any way, shape, or form equate a movement of of passive resistance with Dr. King praying in the streets of American cities that they might, uh, black people might receive equal protection under the laws. We're going to equate that with a bunch of men dressed in G-strings and tutus running through the streets of American cities swinging their private parts back and forth. Folks, I'm sorry. There is, if, if we can equate those two, God help us. God help our culture if we can do that. Let me explain something to you. I could wake up tomorrow. I could wake up tomorrow and determine I'm not going to engage in sexual activity the rest of my life. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to abstain from sexual conduct. That probably wouldn't go over real well at home, but I could make that decision if I wanted to. Why? Because sexual behavior is always a choice. Always a choice. I cannot wake up tomorrow and say, you know what? I don't think I'm going to be Caucasian anymore. Why? Because race is never a choice. Ethnicity is not a choice. These two are not equitable. They're not the same. This is a lie that's being propagated. It goes on, the concept of homophobia turns the table on society. Instead of asking what's wrong with gay people, the question becomes, what's wrong with people who can't accept a different sexual orientation? What's wrong with you, Christian kids, that you have a problem with homosexuality? What's bizarre about your parents that they've taught you there's something improper about this? We need to fix that and correct it, and so we're going to do that. You see why I say, regardless of whether your teachers are Christians or not, and there are a lot of great Christian teachers, this is the stuff that's being propagated. This is the stuff that's being pushed off. And I'll tell you, when I see this and I think about my little girl, I start realizing there's a lot of merits to homeschooling. There's a lot of merits to private schools. And if you're going to send your kids to public schools, be aware. Because I'll tell you this right now, even in my school, it is a sickening display when the kids who have the courage to stand up and face the mockery of men and say, you know something? Homosexuality is condemned behavior. There's something wrong with it. And I love you enough to take the mockery of others, to take the derision of others, to tell you you need to turn from that behavior. There is nothing more loving towards a homosexual than to confront their sin and to rebuke it. And consequently, there is nothing more hateful than to look at a homosexual knowing the physical and the psychological, the emotional and the spiritual consequences and say, Be yourself. Embrace it. There is nothing more hateful than that. Folks, this is the agenda. Don't take my word for it. Richard Bozarth, the Darwinist, says, How does a God die? Quite simply because all his religionists have been converted to another religion, and there is no one left to make children believe that they need him. Finally, it is irresistible. We must ask, how can we kill the God of Christianity? We need only ensure that our schools teach only secular knowledge. If we could achieve this, God would indeed be shortly due for a funeral service. And you see the outworkings in the textbooks. Only secular knowledge. All other religions are fine, just not the religion of the New Testament. Here's the truth that the atheist and the humanist and the agnostic and the atheist intellectuals don't want you to realize uh, there's going to be religion taught in schools. You can't avoid it. If you removed all religious belief, all all, uh, philosophical belief from schools, there'd be nothing left to study. 
That's what we study, and that's what we determine, what's right and what's wrong. You see, the reality is it's only a question of whose morality, whose religion is going to be taught in schools. This is a battle for the hearts and the minds of the next generation. And again, don't trust me. Humanist John Dumphy. I'm convinced that the battle for humankind's future must be waged and won in the public school classroom by teachers who correctly perceive their role as the proselytizers, that means evangelists, of a new faith, a religion of humanity. These teachers must embody the same selfless dedication as the most rabid fundamentalist preachers, for they will be ministers of another sort, utilizing a classroom instead of a pulpit to convey humanist values in whatever subject they teach, regardless of the educational level, preschool, daycare, or large state university. It's there in front of you. And folks, you see the consequences every day. Nobody questions the fact that I have Marxist Communist Manifesto on my bookshelves in my classroom. I've had it there for eight years. Nobody said one thing about it. Nobody's ever questioned the fact that I have Hitler's uh, his autobiography, the uh, Mein Kampf, meaning my struggle. Hitler's book on my bookshelves in my classroom. Nobody's ever questioned it. Nobody questions me having Darwin's Origin of, uh, of Species book on my bookshelves in my classroom. Nobody has ever asked one thing about those. That's just educational stuff. And yet the minute they see the Bible sitting on the desk, what's the first question? Is that legal? I mean, can you have that in the view of children? You tell me how sad that is. How absolutely sad that is, given where we've come. Here's the truth about the isolation of church and state. It's a sham. It has no historical background. It has no precedent. It has no legal justification prior to 1947. None. It is a myth. It was not the intent of the founding fathers, and quite frankly, an intellectual midget could figure that out. You don't have to be a genius. You just have to have basic reading skills. And if you have basic reading skills, you can figure this truth out for yourself. It is illogical. It's impractical. It's impossible. You cannot separate all religion from education. It is impossible to do that. And quite frankly, it's wrong. And recognizing this deception of the left and halting the judicial tyrants that are seeking to supplant the will of the people with their own will is a vital calling for our time. It's a vital task for us, halting this political agenda before it damages our future, if it hasn't already. How do we do that? I hope you'll come back tonight at 6.30. We'll take a page out of the Old Testament book of Nehemiah and talk about rebuilding the walls. Some people, in fact, the question I probably get most often, well, the question I get most often is, how in the world did you get that girl to marry you? Um, uh, to which the answer is she had an off day. Um, but the second most popular question that I get is, is there any way back? Well, I believe we serve a God of second, third, fourth, and fifth chances. And I still believe his words are true. That if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven and heal their land. I believe that. So how do we go about doing it? I'm not a genius, but I think there's some easy ways to implement, and we'll talk about it tonight, 6.30. Would you pray with me as we close? Father God, again, I thank you for this morning. It's a humbling, it's a humbling thing to, to realize where we are. It's a humbling thing to see how far we've come. And Lord, we know that it's not just those out there that have done it. It's because of our complacency. It's because we've been passive because we haven't listened to your word when you told us to stand firm, that we now face the situations that we face. I pray that you would use that to motivate our hearts, to inspire us, to draw us closer to you, that we might go out and again be the salt and the light, influencing our culture and making a difference, a difference that matters, an eternal difference for so many. Go with us from this place. Bring us back here safely tonight. We pray all these things in the name of your Son, our living and conquering Savior, Jesus Christ. And everyone said, amen. God bless you. I'll see you tonight.
Thanks for visiting. We hope you've been encouraged. Please feel free to visit us online at clcchurch.com.